Hello, and welcome to episode 195 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories, one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Eddie Hedgerton and Andres Barino, creators of Monster Mashup Volume 2 on Kickstarter now. This is Matt, and I'm joined by Constructing Comics co-host Noah. Hey there. Eddie, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, could you please give us a brief bio about yourself and maybe an elevator pitch for, for this book? Uh, I'm just a writer, indie writer. I've uh, been writing for a few years. I've had some success, and I'm really grateful that, for that. And elevator pitch for Monster Mashup Volume 1 and 2. Uh, we are using characters in the public domain and mashing them up. Um, I like to think of it as... What if an indie creator had uh, the Marvel Universe and the DC Universe at their fingertips? So it gives these fresh indie creators um, an opportunity to uh, to mash up characters from public domain. And I like using the public domain because uh, it's, it's ours. We own it. Very cool. So you have a you have a couple of stories uh, in there. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But let's uh, let's let's check in with Andreas. Andreas, uh, how you doing? Um, we talked recently on a podcast a few episodes back where you were involved with uh, the comic book school, but it's, it's nice to catch up with you again. So could you tell us about your involvement uh, here with this this book? Yeah, sure, Matt. Thank you for having us again. Um, it's great. Yeah. So my name is Andres. Um, I'm also a comic book writer and letterer, just like like Eddie and and. I heard about Monster Mashup when they were doing their volume one and I've submitted a couple of stories and, and the, the way that things just happen. I mean, I had a story in volume one and another one in volume two. And uh, yeah, for this one, I, I sort of uh, stepped up a bit and, and helped Eddie put everything together uh, because it's a lot of work and <laughs> it's not easy doing it alone. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's basically it. Awesome. So, uh, Eddie, uh, you are sort of the uh, the creator, and you have you have two stories in in this book. Um, do you want to tell us which monsters that you're using, and tell us a little bit about the stories that that, that you're doing? Uh, well, I got a zombie where uh, I mashed up uh, Night of the Living Dead, which is in the public domain, and uh, I mashed up with a werewolf. And yeah, I don't want to spoil too much, but. Yeah, it, it's it's really cool that we could actually use characters and uh, places in uh, Night of the Living Dead. Is the uh, the reason that Night of the Living Dead is is public domain is is because it doesn't seem like the uh, the timing would be long enough for that to go in the oh, public. Oh, it's actually a really cool story. George A. Romero never copyrighted it or trademarked it. Huh. Yeah. I think when you I think when you watch the movie, like when the opening credits comes on, it doesn't or it doesn't have that little like copyrighted, uh, you know, circle C next to it. So I was wondering if that was the case. And that's why it was such a popular midnight movie, because they can just show it. And, and that's why you always see it like in 99 cent bins. Awesome. And uh, so do you want to tell us a little bit about your second story? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, well, uh, it's using Hercules, but kind of with more of a, let's say, a barbarian twist to it, but it's still Hercules. And um, he is, he somehow wandered into Wonderland. Oh, very cool. Nice. And hijinks ensue, I hope. 
Um, yeah. It doesn't end right with just him wandering into Wonderland. Well, yeah. he, he, he comes across a Jabberwocky at some point. That sounds awesome. Sorry, is your brand of writing more action comedy kind of stuff, or is it more action oriented, action horror? Actually, I you know I don't really write too much action. Usually, it's more, I guess, dramatic or actually sweet little stories. That's usually what I uh, enjoy telling. But every once in a while, I love a good action story. You know, I grew up with action comics. You know, it's I was like. It's not my number one love, but it's still just a love. Yeah, that's awesome. And 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 Andres, uh, what's what's your brand like? What, what do you like to write with? Um, uh, when it comes to comics, like I guess, how are you approaching? Like, or how have you approached you know writing for this anthology in the past? So it's it's interesting. Uh, this anthology again is is something that completely spoke to me when I when I when I first read what this was about, but yet uh, this is not exactly what I love doing. Right? What I what I love writing is what I describe as a Twilight Zone episode. Right? So I, okay. I usually love very ordinary stories with a very extraordinary component to them so that's what i usually like right so i guess i'm more in a more in a fantasy in a fantasy world i think that those are where my stories live and um yeah i never uh i think it's great being able to mash up characters especially in the public domain i think it's fantastic but i never i never quite approach the stories that way i i i don't like using it's not that i don't like i i don't choose to use uh monsters in my stories not because i don't love terror because i absolutely do but uh mostly because uh, they are so extraordinary and um, yeah, my, my stories are usually a lot more about life and very, very small stories about life that come across something very, very extraordinary. That's, I guess that's how I would describe the stories I like to write, yeah. That's very cool. And so what, like, uh, when you got like, so I guess like then like what, what, what sort of public domain characters do you like? Like what, what was sort of attracted to you? Like, like what, what character did you like think of uh, that sort of like attracts, is like sort of attractive to you in that sense um, of storylines? So, so when, when I started looking into this, when I saw the pitch for the first volume and I started looking into this, I, I started searching the web for a list of public domain characters. And even though I had a very good understanding of what public domain was at the time, I was blown away by the list of characters out there. It's amazing. It's hundreds and hundreds. It's it's <laughs> it's it's so much longer than you would think it is, and uh, and there's so much potential there. It's absolutely amazing. So uh, at the time, the first thing that, that that popped into my head as a very cool character was Captain Nemo from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, I've always watched the the Disney film with. Um, James Mason and um, what's his uh, Kirk Douglas. I've always loved the film, so that that character, I said, I've got to have this. And and Volume One, maybe Eddie can talk to this, but he didn't want monsters repeating, so we, you kind of needed to to 
make them yours, right? You need to to reach out to him and say, "Hey, I'm using this one and that one, right?" So that no one else could actually use them. So that was that was very interesting. So I remember jumping at the at the chance of using Captain Nemo and and <laughs> and saying, "Hey, I, I'm calling it." <laughs> I remember that. So I used the first time around. I used Captain Nemo and I put him against him and his whale. I put him against Captain Ahab from Moby Dick, right? And uh, that was my first time around, and the monster there being the whale. And um, in that st- in particular story, the the whale uh, that was that Ahab was chasing was Nemo's submarine, right? So it was a mechanical whale, although he didn't know that. That was that time, and and for the second story that ended up coming in volume two, I at the time I had just moved over to, to France. I'm, I'm living in Paris now. I'm originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina. And um, so I just moved there and, and, and it was interesting because I, was, I had discovered much of the architecture here in Paris, which is absolutely amazing. And one of the most beautiful buildings here is the, is the opera, the, the palace of the opera, which is called the Palais Garnier. And uh, that's where the Phantom of the Opera takes place. And I was kind of blown away by that. So I said, I'm going to use only French characters for my second story. And I ended up using the Phantom of the Opera and, um, and Guasimodo, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Phantom of the Opera is such an underrated novel. Uh, it's uh, Gaston LaRue's like, like, I just wish people talked about it more. It's such a great mix of horror and mystery and all that stuff it just like sparks the imagination and then if you can read through any of victor hugo's work i salute you like just like good job if you were able to read through hunchback of notre dame yeah yeah you know what one of the things that i uncovered doing research for this is that um the phantom of the opera originally came out uh, sequentially so it came out in in chapters like one a month or something like that which is very it's a very comic-y thing so i kind of love that little detail yeah very pulpy and i I have i guess sort of the similar same question for you eddie like the idea of this story is like was there like was this born out of like one mashup that you wanted to do where you were like okay i want to see i know this is an example from the second volume but i want to see the wolfman go up against like a werewolf go up against you know the zombies from night of living dead and then like oh my gosh there's an anthology there to be done or where did this idea for it come from uh well the idea came from wanting to use the public domain uh and and that was the, the initial idea with it. How are we going to use all these characters in the public domain around a theme? And my first, the, the first character I called was uh, King Kong, so, but that was in volume one. So I wanted to do a kaiju story so bad. So King Kong and uh, uh, Paul Bunyan. So <laughs> that was my story for volume one. So that was my initial thing that kind of drew me in. And it was too bad that someone else called uh, Cthulhu first. So, Eddie, when you put out the the call for submissions, uh, how are you sort of handling the, uh, you know, the the submission process of, are you looking for like sort of interesting ideas? Are you looking for people that you know and you know can deliver? And then are you keeping a checklist that says, you know, uh, this guy's got, 
these two characters, this gal's got these two characters and, and, you, and you're, you're keeping all of that straight. How are you handling sort of that administrative part of it? Well, all the way back to your first part of the question. Um, I did this really differently. Um, I start off in a small group, a uh, small creators group. And I had, you know, obviously I hadn't done an anthology before. So it was more of a collective at first. I said, hey, how many people... I want to do an anthology so how about anyone in this group that can get together and let's work on some stories together and then we'll do an open call and you know anyone that can pitch me something and we can you know are willing to work on it together hey it gets in no matter what and um we had about ooh, six creators and then at that point then we did an open call. okay um because uh a lot of the creators in this group hadn't really done much before. And I, and I kind of wanted to give them the opportunity uh, to make something. And I think uh, I, a lot of people were really surprised. You know, it's it very, uh, it's a very fulfilling uh, experience, but then we did an open call. And uh, you mentioned that earlier, trying to keep track of all the monsters. That was the toughest part because someone would have a great idea here but someone else have a great idea over here with the same character, but they could be substituted for someone else. So I have to call, you know, uh, or contact the other person. And say, hey, do you mind if you could change the character here? Because I almost had a list of substitutes for, you know, so many characters. Nice. So that must have been interesting. The uh, the the Google spreadsheet of of monsters and, and people. You know, if somebody's looking at. Uh, your history and uh, your computer history, and you, you got this spreadsheet of uh, Godzilla, King Kong, Paul Bunyan. That must have made for some interesting, uh, you know, internet sleuthing. What what what's this guy up to here? Yeah, well, I, I literally had a list, and I would just almost like every night if I had some time, I'd just because so many people would come up to me like, well, I want to I want to tell a uh, you know like a horror story with uh, a sea monster. And well, you know, there's Kraken, you know, you, you can use Kraken. And mm -hmm. So I have these lists. And so, so people would come and say, oh, well, how about this? How about that? And I would guide them, I like help them pick out the characters. Uh, so that, that was fun too. What about, uh, what were the calls for like complete uh, teams or were the calls for like, uh, you know, if you have a, if you're a writer and there's an artist that wants to come in, maybe I can mash you up or were you looking for, for units to come in and work together? Well, I think uh, usually um, teams always get priority, but mm -hmm. there was a really good story and we had, you know, a handful of, uh, of artists that were looking for writers and I were able to, uh, uh, team up some people so that's always difficult and it's an effort but we did it it's really cool to offer it to uh to creators so um andreas you had mentioned that you you are our letterer um do you are you lettering the the stories that, that you work on so i i usually do yeah in in the case of volume two that's how I think it started right now. Um, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, but the, the one in volume one, this is, a, this is a funny story. So I, when I, everything came together for volume one, I was out there looking for an artist and, and I came across a guy 
um, that I kind of liked his portfolio. Um, it was only later that I realized that this guy is actually <laughs> from the same country that I am from, right? That, that was always very funny. When, when you look for people online, you never know where they come from, right? And and we we, we worked together. We agreed on a, on a, on a page rate. And um, so he started sending me the roughs and, and we, we worked through them. And then right after the draft, the, 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 yeah, the draft that he sent me, he said, uh, like one week later, he sent me the first, first page. And it was completely, it was not pencils, right? He went from roughs to inks. And it was completely inked and completely lettered. And we had never, never, never talked about lettering at that stage. I thought that we'll worry about that later. But when I got the first, let, the first page from Horacio, uh, it was completely lettered. So I didn't even have a chance to letter the story in volume one. But in volume two, yeah, I got around to do that. And that's, uh, that, that's, that's, that's a good point, actually. So I, I learned lettering just to... You know, just to be able to, to 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 help out with the process. I mean, because when when you're a writer, you you write months ahead of time. You send everything to an artist, and then you're pretty much done, right? Once the, once the script is done, you're pretty much done. And and the, the the meat of the of the producing a story comes afterwards, and and you're pretty much like sitting with your arms crossed doing nothing. So, I I, I read somewhere that it was a good idea for let for writers to actually lettering and and that is what i did right i taught myself i knew some photoshop and some illustrator from before i taught myself as a way of helping out the process and um but yeah it, it, it's tricky right because i mean if you're not at least decent uh you can totally ruin a story a good story good art in a story if you're not a great letterer so that's always tricky it's always a tricky decision and um and sometimes for some special stories in the past, I've actually reached out and paid for a letterer because sometimes the art is great and, and, and the, the pressure of ruining that is more than I can take, yeah. Nice. And so how did you guys sort of handle like uh, different phases of the anthology? Were you, were you asking for like uh, scripts at a certain date, pencils at a certain date, inks at a certain date so that you could sort of keep checking tracking process was that sort of the uh the wheels behind the machine there uh well i did it kind of like a, a a slower process where we i asked for a first draft and then we got edits and then we worked because i want to be very hands-on with this it was made a whole lot more work but i wanted a first draft and then second draft and then it was a deadline for complete art and then uh, it was another deadline for any uh, edits or anything. So I, I, I wanted to give everyone an opportunity to get what they needed to get done. That's really cool. And it's very thorough. Um, and then, so are, are you, do you sort of like see yourself as an editor then, Eddie? Like when you're like receiving all like the first drafts and the second drafts? Yeah, um, so, some people I was uh, much more involved than others. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I'm the editor on it <laughs> and very much involved. I just don't like using that that uh, title because uh, I would think copy editor. I'm a terrible, terrible copy editor. Uh -huh. 
So actually, actually, Eddie, one thing that I'm not really familiar with, maybe you can tell me how it went, is that you didn't have a, your, your initial idea did not involve a volume two, right? So you got like yeah. so much stories that you need to break it up. How, how did that go? Because I was not present for that. Uh, well, I wanted to bring in as many people as I can. I wanted to make it a big book and I planned for people to drop out no one dropped out so then i was you know I, I you know it's a good thing to have all these amazing stories so when i was budgeting out it just made sense and the budget was just everything worked out a lot better if we split it up in two campaigns it's a tough decision i've been a part of a couple of anthologies that have made that decision and it's sometimes it's a gut punch sometimes it's great though because um you never know you know which one you know, which one's the best to be in, volume one or volume two, you know, it's up to me, but, <laughs> we, you know, in, in other anthologies, you know, when it's not your decision, you just kind of got to trust the editor. So are repeat characters allowed from volume one to, to volume two, uh, or that's uh, not the case? No, yeah, I, did, I didn't want to repeat any okay. characters. I just felt it was better to you know, if one writer wrote the character this way and then they read the next story and the character's completely different. I just didn't want anyone to step on any other's toes. Okay, yeah, that, I like that. And it also probably adds to, to, to the variety of characters and the variety of stories that can be tell, uh, told. Uh, you know, if you have a lot of sort of, uh, you know, if somebody does like a Cthulhu story, um, you know, a lot of times those are going to end with somebody going insane, you know, so like, you know, this allows you to have more variety in, in the storytelling by not doubling down on the characters between, between volumes. Yeah. And then, you know, if, if we allowed that, then every single story would have either Dracula or Cthulhu in it. <laughs> yeah. We had tons of Dracula and tons of Cthulhu. And then, um, so Eddie, for like your writing process, and then I guess this is like a question for Andres too afterwards. So you, you're doing two stories in this new book, presumably with two different artists, right? Yes, um, correct. And like, so are you someone who has like, when you write a script, like, you know, like this is, like this is what you expect the artist to draw or do you have like different relationships with each artist as to what they add or, you know, take away from the script? It, it depends on what, uh, process, you know, whether or not it's a finished script or not. A lot of times when, like, if it's not a finished script or if it's for a pitch, I always like to ask the artist, what do they enjoy drawing? Because usually an artist has, you know, that one thing that they really, you know, they draw over and over and over again or, or a style, or maybe if they were wanting to uh, test out a new art style, you know, I ask them what they are wanting to do. And then I try to mold that pitch around what they are wanting to do. Then uh, same thing, if it's a finished script, then I would try to mold their art style to fit best with the story. Mm -hmm. Do you ever ask uh, what they don't want to draw? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, I've never asked that question. Is it something I should ask? <laughs> oh, I, I've, I've never asked it, but I've always heard the story of like all the old Marvel guys that didn't want to draw horses and stuff like that and would get upset if there was a bunch of horses in the stories and stuff like that. So 
I've had uh, I've had two times people say uh, uh, cityscapes or buildings. Okay. Yeah. Not that they couldn't do them, but they that they couldn't do them justice. <laughs> I don't think I've met a comic artist yet who likes strong cityscapes. Actually, no. We had a uh, we had a guy on last year who who that's his thing. Um, but yeah, I, well, I empathize with those artists. When a, a story that I did recently for uh, for uh, why faith. Um, I, uh, no, no, no. Sorry, the Great Commandments. It was from Jack Holder. Uh, it was in both the anthologies, so I got them mixed up. Uh, the Great Commandment. Uh, we actually had a background artist, and that was a very cool process because we wanted all these detailed backgrounds. So we, you know, our artist had a friend, and that's all he focused on, and it turned out amazing. And it's a process. I'd love to try again. Yeah, I guess the artist Matt and I used on Great Commandment, um, Airtan. Oh, he, yeah, he did. Uh, um, he's like just someone who's like very photorealistic with his artwork and stuff like that. So he just uses like massive amounts of reference and everything like that, which I think is the way to go. I think there's like a Wally Wood quote out there where he's like, "Don't draw anything you can't trace or you can't copy or something <laughs> like that." Like it's like. And I agree. I'm like, yeah, it, it makes sense. So like, I'm just like, but Airtan, like, you know, there are artists out there who can like, uh, who can draw cityscapes, right? And then there are those out there that you can tell trace them. But like Airtan integrates it really nicely into his whole style and stuff like that. So that's always something that I like to see. So I'd be interested, like, what it's like working with a background artist and how they integrate that in with the main artist style. Yeah, they definitely have to work together. Yeah. Yeah. So um, did did you um, set out and like this is one thing I've learned early on with working with anthologies that it's great to, to sort of get the, the template out to folks early on so that like when files are coming in, you're not having to, to resize. Did you did you learn any things or did you have any hiccups with sort of files and and getting stuff ready for the printer? Yeah, lots. Um, I, you know. I stress, I, I gave everyone the, the template. I, you know, stress the size. Everyone came with, back with different sizes and different everything. It's fine. I, it took me a while to go through and do it. It's fine. But definitely if I did it next time, I'd be a lot more uh, strict on it because <laughs> it yeah. didn't make a lot more work for me. Um, and I see what, you know, uh, Russell, Russell Nolte's uh, anthologies, he's very strict. He's saying, You're, it's exactly like this, exactly like that. And I always thought he was being a little picky, but now that I've experienced it, I, I see exactly what, where he's coming from. So uh, interesting story on that. I, uh, I, I, I was in the Cthulhu, it's hard to spell, volume two. And I sent the template to the to the artist, you know, and I was under the assumption that I had communicated, hey, this is what we're going to use. So I get an I get a message almost as we're getting ready to go to print about all of this, like the stuff like bleed and, and margins and all of this stuff. And I'm like, hey, Noah, what is he talking about here? And I, I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> Noah, can you can you fix this? And Noah like turned it around in a, in a couple of hours and, and saved me there. So. It was more like a couple of minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I made the Kessel run in 12 parsecs. That's yeah. good. 
Yeah, that's what it is. No, I um, it it is something that's uh, I can't imagine going through everyone's work and doing that. Because uh, on like the last project Matt and I did, um, I was the main artist, but like I, I was sort of the go between between the colorist and then I lettered it as well. And um, then I was sort of integrating some other people's artwork into the book. And that was a hassle, like to try to make sure that everything stayed the same resolution and the same, you know, it's, uh, it's not a nightmare, but it is work, you know, like it's just, and then. It's tedious, tedious work. It's tedious work. And then there's just always the unpredictability of not being able to like, you know, be with the printer, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like that's what like previews are so great for, but like, for me, like, it's like, it's hard to not be there actually watching it be printed and then like seeing it come off the printer and then being like, like, I don't know, just that waiting to make sure that everything looks okay is, uh, is rough too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of times like indie creators, like we go, we set everything up, but there's always that sort of that moment of doubt when you have the box on your front step and you get the knife out to cut it and you're like, am I going to be pleasantly surprised that everything is all right? Or am I going to be, uh, you know, in for another type of surprise where uh, what I thought I saw in the proofs was not exactly what uh, showed up in, in, in my box here. I just accept that I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> accept that right away. Andres, do you guys teach, uh, like, you know, like formatting and things like that? Is that that something you stress? So, uh, again, that that will be a question for Eddie. So I I had submitted both my, and I don't mean to to shrug them off. It's just that um, I, so both my stories, they, they came pretty much together at the same time and and it ended up happening afterwards that one of them was put into volume two and again i i only stepped up to to help with the campaign recently and and yeah at the, at the time the time i submitted everything i was just nothing more but another creator for the for the anthology so um i don't i don't usually i don't really remember uh, how strict eddie was about that because i mean i i don't remember even going over what my artists had done i just remember putting everything together in a, in a zip file and sending them over to to eddie so all, all of the painstaking process was on his own i i sadly i didn't help with that um on your own projects are you do uh, like are you like kind of picky about all that stuff oh absolutely yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very ocd about those things yeah absolutely yeah and uh, i have a, a, a much better understanding of why that's needed right now after helping with this this whole campaign and putting this book together because just like you guys said right everyone will send you something different and and it's a lot of work a lot of work yeah is it kind of like Eddie, like with this like new campaign, is it good to have sort of someone in your corner to sort of like give you backup now? Like, is that something that was like a big takeaway from the first one? Yeah, actually, um, I didn't have anyone on the first one. Uh, yeah, if we go back to the origin story, uh, I was in that small group, and I started it with someone else, and we did, and we started working on it together, and. I started getting the the open call ready and he bailed out as the open call went out. So at that point, I'm, you know, I had to do it. 
So I just did what I had to do. And I said, this time I, I need someone to help. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> is that, yeah. is, is, is Andres the only guy who's helping you out or do you have other people behind the scenes on this one? Yeah, we have a couple people. Yeah. Uh, Andres. So, yeah, indeed. So we, yeah, we, we, I don't want to say this out loud, but we kind of made it up as we went along, to be honest. We have okay. also, we have this guy called Michael, uh, who's another writer for also volume two that has a great story on it. And he kind of, yeah, also came up and, and raised his hand when we were looking around for someone to help out. And, and he's the guy that's being the face, the visible face of all of our, update videos on the on the campaign yeah absolutely and yeah in this kind of things in my experience at least people bail out on you right it's an unfortunate truth so this story that's in volume volume two so it's called bells of notre dame and and that story i started with this artist that was absolutely fantastic and he sent me the roughs and it was absolutely gorgeous but <laughs> then uh when when the time for the yeah for the deadlines was coming closer the guy like started ghosting me and and eventually yeah. he he came back to me and said sorry i'm not good with deadlines and uh, yeah i i I, <laughs> I threw a fit and i went back to eddie saying hey dude let me find another artist give me some more time and, and he graciously did and yeah, I came across a second artist uh, and yeah, and we were able to put the story together. Yeah, people bail out on you on these anthologies, man. That's that truth. Yeah. So one thing I always wondered about when somebody is putting together um, an anthology, you're at the point where everything's submitted, you're getting stuff ready to, to send to the printer. Um, how do you look to establish the order of the, the stories that you put in? Because I always feel like it's like, if you think about it, like, like, a, like when you would get in like an album, there was always like, you sort of like wanted to like build up to something and maybe like the third or the fourth song was like the, you know, the, you know, the, 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 love, most, yeah. the most rocking one, or, and then you sort of <laughs> yeah. slow down for a little bit and then you, you get, you know, excited again at the end. How much sort of planning goes in there? Oh man, I don't know how how many how many different versions we did, Eddie. We did like four or five of them, and we kept going back and forth with them and saying, "No, no, 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 no." But let's put this one here, and then he <laughs> said, "No, no, 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 no." But this guy is the is our most uh, the strongest creator that we've got in the book, so he has to be closer to the beginning. And yeah, we went back and forth. I don't know how many times, and there's not a right answer in the end, right? So it's it's the answer where where all of the editors start stop actually fighting over that that's a point where you surrender and you say yeah sure that's that's <laughs> that's that, that's the end so I, I think it was george lucas who said i always go back to this he said uh movies uh, are not finished they are abandoned and, mm. and i absolutely agree with that so it's it's the point in which we are both happy with it in this case, right? And I don't know how many iterations of this we did, man. <laughs> like a lot. That's that's really cool. Yeah, I, I always thought that, that that was almost like a uh, unseen or un, underappreciated sort of science about putting together a book, especially a book that's made up of, of different stories. You know, you could just haphazardly put them together or you could actually sort of 
you know, think about them and, and try to sequence them or, or put them in, a, in an order that, that makes it read in, in a way, so. I, I think that one of the things I paid most attention to is the art styles. Because if you think about it, when, when, when you go from one story to the next one, um, so the, the change in art style is usually shocking, right? In a sense. So you, you, what I ended up doing when I, I, when I suggested the order I thought was best was to go from one art style to a very, very different one, right? So that you take advantage of that little shock that you get when you see a different artist. Because if you go with two artists that are similar one to another, it's, it kind of looks like a mistake, right? Like, or like that the artist was replaced by another one or, or, or something like that. It's, it's very difficult to, to explain. But I always like to say, okay, if this story was color and we have one that's black and white, I usually like to make the most of that change and make it as shocking as you can. Also as a way of getting people interested in what's coming up, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the other thing with anthologies. Uh, I always wondered about that and I don't have an answer, but um, let's say that you buy an anthology. This one has 21 stories in it. So how much do you really read, right? If, if you are a creator in that anthology, you'll go straight to your story to see how it looks like, right? But how much do you actually read of an anthology? When, when do you get to a point where you said, yeah, I know what that book is about, right? So, so it's, it's interesting and you have to make the most. It's like a, like a page turn in a mm -hmm. sense, right? You want to make sure that, that you keep the, the flowing interesting for the people that are not invested in the book to actually find a reason to keep on reading right? and not, not give up on it. So that, that was, I guess, my, my approach when we discussed this. When you, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, just sort of uh, with that, I'm wondering, like, probably a lot of people read, like, they might read like three or four stories, stop, you know, put a bookmark in there and then come back. So that also that change in style could also sort of, you know, after you read this, those three stories, three or four stories, you might be, you know, walking around, but you're thinking about what you just read. And then you're like, all right, I'm ready to go back in. You pick up the book, you flip it over to the bookmark. And then that change in art style is almost like, you know, a change in when you pick it up that book, the, the experience is different as well. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because now that I think about it, I, I don't think I work like that with anthologies, with comic book anthologies. I don't think I work like that. So I, I think that I, Hmm, it's interesting. I think that I read them out of order right? and, and, and I go at them and look at, like flip through the book and say, okay, I find this the most interesting one. Maybe if it's the monsters that they're using or the art style or whatever it is. And I, I read them out of order, but based on, on which one I find most uh, interesting, I guess. Yeah. That's an interesting approach. I, I guess maybe the, the analytical side of me is I, I would read them in from, order, put a bookmark in and come back yeah. and, and, and continue where I left off. Which is the, the way that we all read, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying that the biggest theory for me about the, the story order is I'm what I'm thinking of is someone picking up the book at the Comic-Con. Mm -hmm. And the, they're going to go to the beginning and they're going to flip through the first couple of stories. So I, I, was, I just keep on thinking of like, I don't know, think of it like a flip book. And you kind of want like the first couple of pages just to be a bunch of color and a bunch of flash and a bunch of action. That's what I'm thinking. 
when when I'm thinking of the story. So maybe I'm thinking more of an a like an aesthetic appeal, I guess, and not so much of a, a of a a story. The driving as the order. Yeah, I mean, that would make a lot of sense as well, because I know like, you know, with like prose books, a lot of things is like they want to make that first five or 10 pages like really exciting for somebody who would have picked it up, you know, in the store, you know, that's that's glancing through and wants to get a feel for it. They, they want to make sure that they do that in that first five to 10 pages to get them to, you know, say this is the book I want and take it to the to the counter. So it's probably a very similar approach. Yeah, that, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Um, yeah, yeah, interesting. But but that that order of stories needs to work at two different times, right? Mm -hmm. Good point. So what Eddie's saying, so you're picking up the book on a stand, but you haven't bought it yet, right? But then it also needs to work once you put your money down and you take it and you're reading in bed, and it, the, the order of stories still needs to make sense after you actually purchase the book. So it kind of has like multiple purposes, and it's it's kind of a kind of an art to put <laughs> to put the stories together in, in a in a cohesive order, I guess. Awesome. So one of the questions we have with folks who we're interviewing that are, are running a Kickstarter, we, we like to ask about how you sort of maintain your sanity or if you're not maintaining your sanity and you're you're clicking the refresh page on the on the Kickstarter every 30 seconds to see backer counts and, and funding goal counts. How, how are you guys handling that? Uh, <laughs> it's rough. It's rough. Um. I try to be absent-minded about most things that make me stressful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. So if you've already committed to actually doing it, well, that's most of the work right there. So, you know, free your mind and the rest will follow. Yeah, I don't agree with that at all. But <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know he and not with me on that. He's at that total opposite spectrum. Yeah, which is kind of there's there's a couple of things that ended up working really well with this collaboration between Eddie and myself, and that's one. We have a very different approach to things, and the other thing is that we are nine hours offset one of by the other, right? So he's in the west coast of the U.S. I'm in Europe, and and so we we've been kind of relaying all along the campaign and, and I've been taking over when he goes to sleep and the other way around that has been working very well but uh going back to your kickstarter question it's <laughs> it's very stressful it is um I I I again I wasn't involved in volume one but I remember it got funded in like I don't know 25 hours or something and that kind of spoiled I mean this is my first actual kickstarter campaign and and I, I, I knew it was not going to be as fast as volume one, but it's it's a struggle, right? Mm. We have like 40-something creators in this book, and I'm trying to be the shepherd that pushes them and reminds them constantly to reach out to their bases and say, promote the book, promote the book, spread the word. And uh, yeah, it's it's quite nerve-wracking. And um and yeah, you go up and then you go down. One of the things I just learned is that people can cancel their pledges throughout the, throughout the campaign, right? And mm -hmm. you obsess about the percentage of funding. And then one day you notice that you're lower than the, the previous day and said, 
what's going on? And as it turns out, people can actually cancel their pledges. So yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking. I find it very nerve wracking. Yeah. I'm going to be glad on the 14th of April when, when all is said and done. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess uh, to not to switch completely over, but like, uh, how, how long have you been in Paris, Andres? I've been here f- going on five years now. Five years. Okay. So um, I guess for a question for both of you are like, uh, what are cons like, you know, are you like, do you guys have like a good con presence um, with, with your respective works um, where you both are? So Eddie, you can go first. Okay. Um, we actually have a pretty cool con scene here. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm Washington state. We have Emerald city comic con. We also, I live in Tacoma, which we also have uh, Jet City Comic Con. Uh, we also have, well, Jet City Comic Show. And then we have Grit City Comic Show, which is happening this year. We also have uh, Summer Con, which is just a little bit away. And then down in Portland, we have uh, Rose City Comic Con. And up in Vancouver, we have, uh, shoot, what is FanCon, mm-hmm. and those are the bigger ones. There's tons of smaller ones, but yeah, I, we're pretty uh, lucky here in the Pacific Northwest. We have we can go to them year round. It's awesome. Yeah, and the culture here is is very different, right? So we we do get Paris Comic Con here, but uh, honestly, uh, <laughs> when I wanted to start actually having a presence on the floor. We would have been creating the then the this beautiful pandemic of ours hit and wow. a lot of a lot of cons got cancelled. So yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of very it's the, the approach is very different over here, but there's a there's a lot of festivals out there that you can actually have a table in. But yeah, I yeah, I still need to do that for the first time over here. I haven't yet, but I mean yeah, we've got COVID to thank for that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, 2020 was like the year that I had planned four conventions. And I even like at the end of 2019, I did a Facebook post and like 2020, <laughs> my big oh. year, guys. This is the make it or break it year. It's hilarious. Oh, man. Yeah. It's, uh, I guess like uh, for you, Eddie, like we had a guest on from who was uh, from the Pacific Northwest a couple of weeks ago. And um, he talks about like, it's a pretty great area for like comic books and sort of the culture mm-hmm. of comics and stuff like that. Um, uh, like, are you like, I guess like outside of pandemic, are, are you able to like meet up and like, you know, hang out with like, like-minded individuals? No, I don't have any friends. Yeah, understandable. <laughs> yeah, that's a simple answer to that. <laughs> Sorry. I wish I had a better answer for you. No, I don't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, but what's uh like what's the comic culture like then in in paris andres is it like is it sort of like i mean here in the u.s it's sort of like 50 50 people either think it's trash or it's art you know that kind of thing so is uh what's the culture like there so it's 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 amazing right so uh the the whole switch that i did in a mentality when i moved from argentina so in argentina it's i would say 95 percent trash the perception and five percent art and over here is the complete opposite it's like 95 percent art these guys have um, such a rich culture of what they call bd 
they call it bande dessinée, which is the word for, for mm-hmm. comic. And they've got so many specialized libraries here and they have such a production. They have a very cool um, sort of uh, festival in January every year called Angoulême, which is uh, fantastic, right? So this whole school, this uh, French-Belgian uh, comic book school here where Tintin came from, I was going to say Tantan, where Tintin came from. And they've got so, so many, like Lucky Luke, they've got such a rich culture over here and they they love it, right? And here it's mostly, it's very, what's the word I'm looking for? It's very intellectual. It's a very intellectual scene, right? And they they love it. And people actually, very old people uh, going the subway reading a, a comic and that's absolutely accepted and fine and and no, no one laughs at the guy right so I'm, I'm used to people like making fun of you and reading reading when i'm i'm only reading comics when i was at home back in argentina and, and now here no it's it's amazing uh, actually i i moved to the right place yeah, yeah sounds like it yeah i I've, I've heard that about paris i just wanted to make sure that it was true you know it is. uh yes. it, it's uh it doesn't sound like a paradise until comics are accepted. So I think Paris <laughs> is a paradise then. Yeah. The other difference. That's in all culture. I expect when I go, I'm just going to yeah. be like, if it falls short of that, I'm going to hate it. No, yeah, absolutely. And the other, the other big cultural difference here is that they don't have floppies. They, mm-hmm. they put everything out in what they call albums, which are hard, hardcover, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 pages. And all of the stories are concluded within that. I mean, you can have several volumes of things, but they have a, yeah, they have a very different approach. And even the, the size of the pages are different, right? They have big, a, a lot bigger pages over here and they have, actually have bigger panel counts per page because of the, of the bigger real estate. Yeah. It's very interesting. My six-year-old niece, uh, I've been getting her comics lately and they're just like, trade paperback stuff that we have here and um she's been loving them but the other day i brought in a hardcover graphic novel to show her and um she was like that's a book comic not a comic book is what she said so it's like she's like i like comic books i don't like book comics is what she said so smart girl yeah yeah Awesome. Well, guys, I, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you guys, uh, and I know that you guys are, are, are working on this. Um, do you, are you guys thinking about tackling more monsters uh, in the future, or are you guys uh, maybe taking a break and, and want to work on, on something different coming up? Uh, what, what are your thoughts there? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a hot question. Um, I, I, I keep on getting the question asked if there's going to be a volume three. I'm not planning a volume three as of right now. I do have another idea for an anthology I really, really want to sink my teeth into. But, you know, first things first, get this done out of the way. Got to make sure this is successful. Mm-hmm. Can't really plan the, the next project until this project is successful. And uh, yeah. who knows, though? Who knows? Uh, I think uh, Andres has something to say about that. Yeah, I... I... I, I think that you hit the nail in the head. I think that um, it's been challenging to, to, to get this funded, right? So, and, and right now, as we are recording this, we can't take for granted that we'll be funded. So um, we are, we'll do our best, right? But it's, it's tough out there. And, and yeah, I mean, we can, we can discuss a volume three once we get funded, for sure. 
And I know that there's a lot of interest in the creator community for volume three. Like Eddie said, he, he keeps coming back to me and saying, yeah, someone inquired about volume three today again. And so I, I think that, um, I think it would make sense to make a volume three. Um, and, and, and even the, you know, the introduction, the foreword for volume two was written by, by Buddy, Buddy Scalera, which is the, the owner and the creator and the founder of Comic School, which was here with us last time we did this, Matt. And mm-hmm. um, he, he wrote the introduction to this and he ended up saying something like that, right? Like that I think that this should be a, a trilogy. And I sort of agree with him there. But yeah, we'll, we'll see how well we do with volume two and then we can readdress this. And I'll probably be bugging Eddie to do a volume three. Yeah, most likely. Awesome. So uh, let's turn our attention back to to two as we close up. Uh, does which which one of you guys want to give me the the elevator pitch again, and maybe say uh, is it? Or did somebody say earlier that there's uh, twenty one stories in in volume two? Uh, do you guys have the counts for for stories here? Yeah, it's twenty one stories, forty one creators, if I'm not mistaken, and it's one hundred and seventy two pages. And if I'm not mistaken, they're all, or almost all of them, they're all eight pages long. There's a couple that are six, but there are, most of them are eight pages. And um, Eddie, I'm going to go over to you for the elevator pitch, man. Sorry. Oh, elevator pitch again. Shoot. All right. Hey, you like monsters? You like heroes? You like the public domain? Well, this book got both of it. Have you ever imagined what would it be like if... Uh, Punchback of Notre Dame came across a uh, fan of the opera. Well, you well, you don't have to think too long because you can just back the book and read it for yourself. Uh, a lot of great young creators on here. Young, I mean new creators, sorry. <laughs> new creators. <laughs> and um, that's what I love about reading anthologies is just, uh, you know, say, oh, oh, who's this writer? Oh, wow. I, you know, I've read his stuff before. Oh, I hope I get to uh, get to meet this creator. Oh, she's an amazing artist. I I, I want to shake her hand when I see her. And yeah, that's that's my that's what I take away from anthologies. It's more of like a I guess a yearbook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see, you go through. Oh, oh wow, he he really knocked it out of the park this time. What about any uh, social media uh, links that you guys want to give out to, uh, you know, have people follow, maybe, uh, you know, like, retweet and, and share that kind of stuff? Uh, do you guys have a, a, the, the best way to, to support the project that way? Well, we got, if you just go to www.gritcitycomics, all one word, gritcitycomics.com, you'll go right to the campaign page. And awesome. there we have everyone's links. So yeah, I advise just to go to the campaign. All right. Well, we'll put a uh, we'll put a link in the show notes for 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 that web page. Just for anybody listening, if they just want to, you know, click over to the show notes and click the link, uh, we'll make it as easy as possible for them to to get there. So, uh, I'd like to thank you guys for for being on. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. And you know, when you're given that elevator pitch, who doesn't like monsters and who doesn't like heroes? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I know that's an easy one, huh? Awesome. Well, uh, do you guys uh, have anything else uh, before we, we close up here? No, I, we just wanted to thank you, Matt and Noah, for opening the doors for us to, to do some promoting of our work. I mean, we've, we've loved putting this book together, to be honest, and 
it's been a lot of work, but it's been very, very rewarding. And we are very happy to be able to share that with the community. So yeah, just head up to, to Kickstarter and look up Monster Mashup Volume 2, guys. Very cool. All right, guys. Well, well, thanks again for, for being on. Uh, for anybody listening, if you could give us a rating and review on the podcasting service you use, we really appreciate it. If you want to follow the podcast, we're on Twitter at ConstructComPod. Instagram is Constructing Comics Pod, and Facebook is Constructing Comics. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Uh, please be safe, be nice to each other, and go out there and make some comics. Thank you. <laughs>